0: are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. You know, last Sunday, I uh, preached for one half hour about being peacemakers. And then I said, in two weeks, we'll start a new series called The Fight. And everybody made fun of me for it. Only about 500 of you mentioned it to me, that's all. But it does beg the question, how, how do we as Christians fight for what we believe in, right? And so I can't wait until next week to start that series. I, I hope you bring somebody with you. Nat and I, we're praying, thinking about who can we invite to join us in church next week. And I hope that you have somebody sitting beside you next week that wasn't here this week, that you've invited to come for that series called The Fight. Some things are worth fighting for. And how does a Christian fight? We fight a lot on our knees, right? But we fight for the truth. We fight for our family. We fight for marriages. We fight for those kinds of things. And so we begin next Sunday. Um, Last Sunday for World Upside Down. The reason we called it World Upside Down is because it seems that Jesus views things what appears to be upside down from the way our society views things. So we, we would say you know in society if you if you want to be first be first and jesus says no i think if you want to be first it's kind of upside down i think i think you want to go to the back of the line the first will be last or we say you know the greatest among you is the greatest among you and jesus says no i think the greatest among you is like the least among you You want to save your life, then save your life. Jesus says, no, I think if you want to save your life, you do that by losing your life. And so it's made me wonder through the series, is Jesus really seeing the world in an upside down kind of way? Or is Jesus right side up and everybody else is upside down? And so when I think about the Beatitudes becoming more meek or becoming more merciful or becoming more of a peacemaker... Isn't that what God intended all along? And that's really the world right side up. And maybe culture is upside down. So while I know that they are promises and not commands, we are commanded in other places in Scripture to be more meek or more merciful or more of a peacemaker, right? And I'm good with it. Are you good with it? You are? Good. And so sometimes you you find yourself saying i i desire more of this right i i love this i want to be i want to be more compassionate or or i want to seek god god's righteousness in a greater way i mean we're leaning in so it's good isn't it i mean it's good for you it's good for me we're all good we're good until you get to verse 10 Well, what is it with verse 10? I don't don't know that you want to deal with verse 10 today. Verse 10 is hard. In fact, you know what? It's a holiday weekend. My goodness alive, the worship has been great. What if we just fold it all up and say, why don't I just miss you early? And you can just start the holiday a little sooner, right? And somebody said, no, time out, time out. I want to know what verse 10 is. What does Jesus say in verse 10? That's so hard. Well, in verse 10, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said that. He actually says it twice. Because in verse 11, he says, blessed are you when people insult you. When people persecute you, when people falsely say all kinds of evil against you, when they lie about you, because of me. In fact, he says, when that happens, you should rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. W- wait, wait a minute. He, he says that that the person who is blessed is the person who is persecuted. I mean, when we talk about the fullest life possible. It's for the person who gets persecuted. Don't I remember that some people who got persecuted like lost their life? I mean, like, didn't they get killed? He kind of addresses that too by talking about this reward is now, but it's also in the world to come in eternity. So I was in the store the other day with my wife, Annette. We were walking through the store and I was thinking about my sermon. And so I said to Annette, hey, Annette, I want to ask you a question. She goes, okay. And I said, um who would you be willing to give your life for, Jesus? And she said, yes. And I said, Sadie? Sadie's our eight-year-old granddaughter, and she said, of course. And I said, our girls? Brittany and Morgan are our two daughters, and she said, I would give my life for our girls. I said, anybody else come to (laughs) mind? And she said, you know, I would give my life for you if it was called for. And she said, and you would give your life for me. And so I thought, I better think about this for a minute, huh? She's right. I would. If her being able to continue to live was dependent on me giving my life, I would give my life. Nettie, I would take a bullet for you. You know what's interesting to me? The causes and the people that we would be willing to give our lives for are the things that make our lives worth living. The causes and the people that we would be willing to give our lives for those are the things that we are living for. I think the crux of the conversations today maybe hangs in some words of a civil rights activist whose name was Martin Luther King Jr. You just need to let this soak in for a minute, okay? He said, if you haven't discovered something that's worth dying for, then you haven't found anything worth living for. If you haven't discovered something that's worth dying for, then you haven't found anything worth living for. I think another way to say it is that there are some things in our life that is more that are more important than life itself. There, there are some things in our lives that, that are more important than our very own life itself. And so let me me dive in with you to Matthew chapter 5. I have loved reading to you the same passage of Scripture week after week after week. And I get to read it one more time, okay? So here we go. When Jesus saw the crowds, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he went up on a mountainside, and I showed you a picture of that mountainside a few weeks ago, and he sat down. Guess who came behind him? His disciples. They came to him and he began to teach them. Now Jesus is standing, sitting rather, they're standing and he teaches them. The Beatitudes, he said, or rather the blessings, okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed is the person who understands how desperate they are and how great in need they are for God. The person who understands, I I can't do this without God. I must have God's help. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are truly sorry for their sins. It could be broader than that, but it definitely in the context means that. For they will be comforted. And then blessed are the meek. Blessed is the person who says, I don't have to be in control. In fact, I prefer a God-controlled life. For they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who, who feel like I cannot survive without God's righteousness. For they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful. Those who are quick to forgive and quick to slow show compassion. For they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart. The person who in their heart is undivided in their loyalty for God. For they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers. Those who strive. To help others find peace with God and one another, for they will be called the children of God. And then there's verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he says it another way Blessed are those, are you rather, when people insult you. And persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, I know he says it, rejoice and be glad, he says it, be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So let's dive in and see what God has to say to us today through his word. I don't know, but I've got a feeling some of you are saying, I'm a little bit tired of you saying, you know, when I was in Israel, (laughs) because I say it a lot, I I can't help not see those places in my mind when I read the New Testament, though. It's impossible for me to not see those cities and those places. And so when I was in Israel, there we go, we went to a city called Caesarea. Now, in, in New Testament times, there were four cities called Caesarea. Basically, it was somebody trying to get in good with Caesar, okay? And so they named the city after the Caesar, Caesarea. Aren't you honored? We're naming our city after you, Caesar. So there were four cities named Caesarea. This is the Caesarea that uh, is on the Mediterranean Sea. And so we visited the city, and we finally found ourselves at the Hippodrome. Now, Hippodrome in Latin is really two words And the words would be horse and course. So it was a place for horse races and chariot races, okay? Have a picture of it because I thought you might enjoy seeing it. This is it here. So when I say on the Mediterranean Sea, I mean on the Mediterranean Sea. 13,000 seats around the arena. This is still left here today. It was here 2,000 years ago. I remember walking around finding a plaque that talked about the Hippodrome and the juices. It was kind of cool when I read that every four years they had games there. Kind of made me think about the Olympics. But I found on the same plaque some pretty hard words. Here's the words. Christians... Christian prisoners in the Hippodrome were sent to their death either fighting as gladiators or as prey for wild beasts. If you can picture it, the 13,000 seats filled and part of the entertainment that day was Christian prisoners being pushed out onto the playing field to fight a well-weaponed gladiator much stronger and more powerful than them or a wild beast being unleashed to tear the Christian apart alive. I, I, I walked out into the field and, and I looked over beside me and I saw the water. Sea level doesn't lie. And I looked down at the dirt around my feet. And it became a sacred moment. A thin place where the veil between heaven and earth seemed to be very sheer. And I looked at the ground beneath me. And I admitted to myself that maybe the very place where I was standing was where a Christian died. Because they had determined that there are some causes and some people that are worth more than life itself. They had found something worth giving their life for. I brought a picture of Jesus with me because I'm confessing to you that this is my image of Jesus. I think we all carry around with us a picture of Jesus in our minds. We have some kind of image of Jesus, some kind of understanding of what Jesus is like. And I love this image because it's kind of what I see when I think about him. I love it because he's smiling. I see him as warm and tender and kind and gracious I don't carry with me a picture of a dangerous Jesus. But I find myself wondering, when did his followers realize following Jesus is dangerous? This guy can be dangerous. For some, was it when John the Baptist was beheaded? And all of a sudden people said, well, okay, it just got real. For some, was it when Jesus was actually crucified, did his followers stand at the cross saying, we better hide? And on as the church began to gain steam, was it when people like Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown into jail? And, And don't I remember that history teaches us that the 11 remaining disciples, didn't almost all of them die of execution because of their faith? And then you get to 303, year 303 AD. It's the year of what they call the great persecution. Church buildings were destroyed. Sacred writings were burned. Christians lost all civil rights. And clergy were thrown into prison. I, I think here's what happens for us. We, we, we think like this. We think, wow. Those 400 years must have been tough. And I think we see it as all something that happened back there. You need to buckle up for this. True story. More Christians died because of their faith in the 20th century in the last 100 years than in the previous 19 centuries combined. I feel like because we live in the United States of America and we have escaped the persecution of the church in our country, we tend to believe it's not happening anywhere. But the truth is that more Christians died because of their faith in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. In the 20th century, it is documented that 26 million people died because of their faith in Jesus. I stood in the foyer an hour ago when the first service was dismissed. And a lady comes up to me And she hands me her card, and she said, this is my family. We are missionaries in Ethiopia. We understand your sermon today. My husband has been thrown in jail because of his faith. We live our lives every day under the threat of persecution. It's happening all over the world and she said, I think you're right. When I come back to the States and I visit with people, I think that they have this sense that because it's not happening in this country, it's not happening. She said, we live with the threat of persecution, and sometimes we experience persecution, but for us, it's every day of our lives. I want you to notice the shift in person, okay? In verse 10, it's third person. Blessed are those who are persecuted. It feels like it's out there, doesn't it? I think about those who have been per- I'm not thinking about me, right? I'm thinking about those who have been persecuted. But when we get to verse 11, the shift is to second person. Jesus looks his disciples in the eyes and says, blessed are you. When? Not if. People insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil about you when they lie about you because of me. Can you imagine being in that moment? Can you imagine Jesus looking you in the eye and saying, blessed are you, Brian, because they will insult you. They will persecute you. They will lie about you because of me. What what are you trying to say, Rick? I think this is what I'm trying to say. That when we embody the Beatitudes, and I don't think the order is a mistake. When we embody them, when we begin to live out this life that Jesus calls us to, insults and persecution and lies against us are all likely to occur. And just because you're not happening to see it in your community, it's happening all around this world. And I will say this, that in these United States of America, the climate toward Christianity is shifting. Um, Three years ago, I broke my right femur crazy, silly accident, had my hip replaced was the fix, broke off where the bone goes into the joint of the hip. And so for two weeks, I walked with a cane. And um, one of the coolest things that happened while I was walking with a cane was that I would come into church and either in the room or in the foyer or in a hallway I would see like one of our cherished senior adults, and, and they too had a cane. And they would catch my eye sometimes, even from across the room, and they would hold up their cane <laughs> and nod at mine. And it was like they were saying, you know, we're alike. You get me, right? I get you. I remember one, one elderly guy just walked up to me and just whacked my cane with his cane. And then he winked at me, you know, like we're buddies. I loved it. I love being able to identify in that way with a, a group of people who are in kind of the, the winter season of life and, and maybe struggling to get around without an aid. I, I loved, I love that connection. And I think that's what Jesus does in the last verse. In the same way, they persecuted the prophets before you. I I think Jesus is saying, if if you look down through history, you'll see somebody else with a cane. You're in good company. You're not the first one to be persecuted for your faith. There's a long stream of tradition here that understand you. Why wouldn't this be our story? Why wouldn't you and I at some point suffer for our faith? Let me give you the words of James Howe, who has written extensively about the Beatitudes. He says, why should we expect to find ourselves in sync with a world that is so out of sync with God? I'll read it again because I typically do. Why should we expect to find ourselves in sync with a world that is so out of sync with God? So, I'm going to pull up a chair because I think we should talk for a few minutes. You might say, Rick, are we really out of sync? We should be. We're the Jesus people, the Word of God is authoritative in our lives. And we're not in step with society on every issue that comes along. We do not believe everything that our culture believes. We don't see truth as being relative. We see it being absolute. And while I understand that there are times that say, well, if people know that I believe this way... What will they think about me? Or how will they maybe treat me? And I believe that Jesus gives us the response. It's kind of like the to-do part of the sermon. He says in the Gospel of Matthew, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross And follow me. He never said it would be easy. In fact, he always said it wouldn't be easy. There will be insults, there will be persecution, and people will lie about you. There is a cross in this journey. And people will be frustrated because you believe some of the things that you believe. And because you stand for some of the things that you stand for. And I just feel a need to throw this in. I do believe that some Christians are persecuted because of their convictions. But unfortunately, I also believe that some are persecuted because they are acting a fool. And you got to sort that out. And so I think it's today a matter of saying, God, would you give me grace to stand and to accept the cross? And I don't leave this place today asking, How can I be in sync with my culture? I leave this place today asking for grace. to accept the cross. When you walked through the doors, there were greeters offering you grace. And so if you'll take the cup that you were given and if you will open the bread first and then open the drink. If you sincerely seek Jesus today, I invite you to participate. I do believe that this act is a means of God extending his grace to us. And so if you're saying in your heart, I want Jesus, I desire Jesus that I invite you to join. I often think about this moment like this. When I eat and drink, and I receive this food, and it begins to make its way into my body. That's the picture I have. I'm receiving grace, the grace of Jesus in the moment. We've spent these last several weeks talking about what it is to be a peacemaker, what it is to be meek, what it is not to be arrogant, but to be low in spirit. What it is to be merciful, quick to forgive, quick to be compassionate. What it is to accept the cross. None of us are capable in our own strengths to do any of it. We need his grace. And this morning he offers freely to us a way to be made holy. So accept his grace, John Wesley said, whenever he offers it to you. So with the disciples he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you, eat it. And then he took the cup, my blood, poured out for the ransom of many. Drink it, all of you, and be thankful. We are thankful, Father, for the grace and the help that is offered to us by Jesus, your Son, made possible through his death on the cross. Help us to remember well. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.